I think between that we'll be able to hopefully there's something there that makes sense it'll all come together in the edit yeah yeah that's what I love to hear is the editor December 2020. Yeah. I'm still not Quiver Doyle. <laughs> I'm still not Catherine Doyle. And this is still not not a podcast. It's been a long year. <laughs> it's been a long year. Hard to believe we put out our first episode this year. Yeah. Especially because that, that one alone took about two years. I don't have people lost. I mean, I think I think they know. Uh, so still, this remains not a film review podcast, not really a theory exercise, not mm. art, except when it is any or all of those things. Um, and that's why it's called Not Not, because it's uh, not not, but is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, which, once again, uh, just a reminder, is down to the writing of Nicola Maschandaro on black metal theory, which is not, not black metal, not, not theory, not, not black metal theory, a theoretical blackening of metal. Um, she didn't even have that written down. <laughs> didn't even she just said that off the top of her head. Like. Off the dome. I always forget the first part of the sentence where he says, not black metal, not theory, not, <laughs> not black metal, not, not theory, which I think does help explain it more. Um, but, you know, we're not about explanations here. We're about doing... <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, we're not doing horror. I'm very much about not doing mm. at the minute and in general. Oh. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, you just, you gotta... Yeah, sometimes... You gotta do things, unfortunately. Tragically, you sometimes gotta do things or at least not not do them. Which is very frustrating. Um, so, in terms of doing things, uh, you may remember that last time we picked our texts for this episode. We generated them with a random number generator from some lists we have. Um, Quiver, do you want to remind us what those are? Um, yeah, so they are um, The Red Tree by Caitlin or Kiernan. Mm-hmm. That's a book. That's a book. The film that we selected uh, is Jupiter Ascending, uh, directed by the Wachowskis in 2015. Yeah, and then alongside those, we did select a song. It's a wild card, so we don't have to include it, and we haven't. Uh, but sure, just remind me <laughs> what it is there, Quiffa. Uh, it was The Raven by Alan Parsons Project, which is a, a banger. It is a banger. That's the unfortunate oh, thing. And... You know, does does have some links, but we probably won't get into them. But yeah, so since we've selected those, we have watched the film, we've both read the book, um, and I'm sure we've both listened to the tune. Oh yeah. Um, because Halloween has elapsed since the last time. Let's get into what we, what the texts are about, first of all. 
and what we what we thought of them. The the book is the Red Tree, um, by Caitlin Orr Kiernan, and it's from two thousand and nine. And as is my approach, I may just read the blurb from the back of the book. Great to give people an idea of what's going on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So the main character is uh, Sarah Crow. She left Atlanta and the remnants of a tumultuous relationship to live in an old house in rural Rhode Island. Within its walls, she discovers an unfinished manuscript written by the house's former tenant, an anthropologist obsessed with an ancient oak growing in a desolate corner of the property. Tied to local legends of supernatural magic, as well as documented accidents and murders, the gnarled tree takes root in Sarah's imagination, prompting her to write her own account of its unsavoury history. And as the oak continues to possess her dreams and nearly almost all her waking thoughts, Sarah risks her health and her sanity to unearth a revelation planted centuries ago. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, 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 indeed. <laughs> Would we say that that is actually what happens in the book? No. Okay. Not, not that, like, that last sentence is a lie. Yeah. In my she, opinion. She, she unearths nothing. <laughs> she doesn't. There's... Or zero revelation. I mean, she says she has a revelation, but we don't certainly don't under- come to understand it. I, as far as I'm concerned, and I've read it twice. Um, um, unless the revelation that's planted is the tree itself, which maybe it is. Maybe so. Uh, I don't know. I think that's just like, you know, something you put on back of books to get people to read them. Yeah. Um, I- it's meaningless. It doesn't. It means nothing. Um, but yeah, so the book is like written in the format of like diary entries basically mm. so Sarah's um, she finds the this manuscript as they say and she finds this old typewriter uh, I think with it or near it or something I can't remember and then she starts um, writing a kind of diary with this manuscript because she's supposed to be writing her next book mm-hmm. um, she's a novelist I don't know if I can't remember if they mentioned that in the blurb um, but she doesn't know what to write for her next book and she just starts writing basically like her diary of living um, in the house yeah um, instead of what she's supposed to be writing yeah it's mean, very I, relatable it's very relatable and I think also like yeah so the thing is like the main thing is that her kind of complicated grief of her ex-girlfriend's death mm-hmm. is like what's um, kind of blocking her from writing yeah. And she like knows that, you know, she never makes an attempt to be in the book that she's supposed to be writing at no, no point. You know? No. And like um, at the start of the book, there's um, these quite like uh, funny scenes where she's getting phone calls from her agent. Mm. Um, and she's just like, oh, we both like we both know that I'm lying about mm. make, having made progress in this book. But like, when's the time going to come where I'm just going to like one of us is going to admit it basically <laughs> yeah when's the time going to come where we're both going to admit this book doesn't exist yeah. will never exist <laughs> it's, it's never <laughs> happening um, so yeah so um, most of the book is just these diary entries and then a lot of the time she transcribes passages from the um, manuscript that she found by Charles Harvey he is from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology in some university in the US. Mm. And he is writing sort of about the history of the house and the tree Mm. and stuff like that. But I think you find out in the very start at the... There's like an editor's note at the start, which Mm. isn't a real editor's note. It's actually part of the story. Um, 
that he like was found hanging from the tree. Mm. I think um, I'm not sure how long before Sarah moved into the house, but I think it was a couple of years. I think it was like two years yeah. before. So he never finished the manuscript. Um, um, I just yeah, I just think it's interesting just to mention the kind of like overall like the f- like the format that it takes. So it's diary entries, but like there is that fake editor's note, and there's an mm. editor's note at the end. Um, and just like it's format wise, it's like it's kind of fakes within fakes, and then there's some like real stuff yeah, in yeah. there. Like you know, yeah, it, it's very there's a lot of kind of real folklore of New England in this, yeah. Um, and then yeah, so it has this kind of like oh, I don't know, like message in a bottle, like old school, you know, as if this manuscript has been like found. You know, you know yeah yeah so like the whole editor's note at the start is about is like written from the perspective of sarah crow's editor who's like got this manuscript after so because you find out at the start as well that sarah has died mm. by by the end of this book right? yeah and yeah her editor's gotten the manuscript i don't know like she found it in the house i think it was sent to her it was like okay. sent to her yeah it was no kind of um, address or whatever and so she's kind of giving this forward. She gives you some, like, information about the house and, like, previous occupants and stuff like that. So it's very much, like, supposed to be a real, mm. yeah, like a found footage put in a book. Yeah, there's a lot, and there's a lot of stuff where she's like, oh, I can't really remember this quote, but, like, here's the general mm. idea of it or whatever. Um, which I think is kind of a, it's a great tool to, you know, you don't, you don't actually have to look up any real quotes. Yeah, but I think you're just writing from that perspective. Yeah, but it's like it's a good tactic as well because Mm -hmm. then it lets you, you know, like I don't know, I'll get into this, you know, but uh, the because there's already this overlap with like writing about folklore and and this kind of things, talking about like kind of mystics, like you know Evelyn Underhill and like Arthur Conan Doyle, who like Mm -hmm. the tree is not real, but if it was, like they could have written about it, and so like. She'll put in, like, real quotes from them. Like, the manuscript will include the real quotes from them. Yeah. And then fake quotes or stories from them about, like, the tree. Yeah. Um, but they're already such unreliable sources because they're talking yeah. about, like, total like, quackery, you know. That, yeah. Uh, it's just, like, yeah, it's really good at eluding truth and fiction, I think, you know. Yeah, and, like, sometimes I think that can be, like, a bit too much. Like, the layers of... Um, uh, like in other stuff, you know, mm. like the layers of things, of like fake things that are supposed to be real, whatever. But I think it works really well mm. in in this book. Anyway, I I really like it. I, I appreciate it even more even more this time. Um, yeah. Another aspect of that is dream sequences. A lot of it's about dreams. Yeah, and that's another way that it's like. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's fun. Like, cause she a lot of the time like talks about how. She's an unreliable narrator mm. as well, which I kind of enjoy. And, like, uh, she writes a lot in it as well. Like, she's like, oh, my editor's always saying that I, like, go off on tangents and here I am off on another tangent and people are always giving out that I don't have enough or I have too many dream sequences mm. in my in my books. But anyway, here's another <laughs> dream sequence and stuff. <laughs> anyway, here's a dream I had last night. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, I will say that it's, like, it's pretty grim... And there's, like, a lot of references to, like, suicide and, like, the narrator herself is, like, not in a good mental health mm. for, like, the whole book. So, uh, 
I guess, like, trigger warning for that if you're not wanting yeah. to read stuff from the perspective of someone who's definitely, like, depressed and mentally ill, um, talking about other people who have, like, killed themselves. Yeah. Um, but it's it's good. <laughs> and also what I found annoying is, like, I know this is a really minor point, but in the version that I have anyway, it's, it's you know, the book's supposed to be written by Sarah Crow. Yeah. But on every single page it has Caitlin or Kiernan's name. Yeah. Um, like, you know, like the way they have authors' names on the tops of mm. the margins. And I just find that really, like, annoying. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, I don't, I don't, I think anything else we get into would be kind of spoiler territory, so. That was the Red Tree. Um, and now I'm going to give a little summary of Jupiter Ascending, the 2015 film by the Wachowskis. So this is a co-production between Warner Brothers and Village Roadshow, who are Australian. So here's my very short <laughs> summary. Um, so Jupiter Ascending follows Jupiter Jones, who's a second-generation Russian in the US. And she discovers that she's the genetic reincarnation of the matriarch of the House of Abrasics, which is this, like, transhuman royal dynasty from space. She learns this. She learns that her previous incarnation seeded the earth and owns the earth. So she now owns the earth. And that she's got a load of children from her previous incarnation who all want to rip her off and stop her reclaiming the earth and the rest of her property. Uh, if you watch the film, you don't really find out what's up with the aliens for a while, but it's not like a twist. They just don't tell you for a while. Um, but if you read the Wikipedia summary, they tell you in the first line. So I'm going to tell you right now, they seed planets with intelligent life and then they later harvest that mm -hmm. they harvest that life in a total planetary genocide and use their life force to make youth serum yeah um, and what is not really clear in the film yeah but we should be clear about is it seeded like planting yes and not seeded like giving up yeah, yeah. Seed Which is very confusing. It is. In the context of the film. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it being is. like, they've given up the earth to whom? Yeah, because because when? she is then asked to... To seed to the earth. To seed the earth. To, <laughs> at many points. Not in those words, but like, that is what she's asked to do throughout the film. Yeah, so it's very it's very confusing. But yeah. no, they, they plant humans Yeah, they seed earth. the plants and then they harvest the plants. So that's you got to think of it in those terms. The seed relates to harvest, not to anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they seed these plants and then they'll harvest them and they'll use the, the like life of the people on the planet to make youth serum. So all the rich people like look super young because they're like basically you know drinking human life <laughs> mm. um and uh yeah uh that's the broad strokes the plot itself is a whole other thing what i thought i would do is just exp just go through the cast like who the kind of main people are yeah um okay so the main person is jupiter jones uh jupiter jones is played by mila kunis she is a cleaner whose family is Russian and she really wants a telescope. That's her whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is her entire thing. Uh, she meets Kane Wise, who's played by Channing Tatum. He's a half albino wolf human splice bred for military service 
He's got flying rocket shoes and he used to have wings. And he's got such a good sense of smell that he tracked her genes through the universe by smell alone. That's how he's found her. That's uh, why he's there. Sean Bean is in this film playing a character called Stinger. Uh, otherwise known as Sean B to me and everyone else who's seen this film he's part human part B it doesn't get any simpler than that that's it uh, and he's got kind of slightly reflective eyes uh, I was just going to say Sean B doesn't have any wings no um, and neither does Giant Tatum's character because they they have been like basically given like a dishonourable discharge from the army yeah and part of the punishment was they had their wings chopped off Yes, yeah. Uh, and then there's the three children of the kind of unnamed matriarch of the House of Abrasics, who Jupiter Jones was in a, not in a former life, but anyway, this woman who she had shares genetic information with. The children are Balam, who is played by Eddie Redmayne, giving the performance of a lifetime. He's giving... I mean, it's it's very Alyssa Edwards as we kind of acknowledged yeah. in watching it. Uh, if people watch Drag Race, huge like Oedipus complex energy. He literally lives inside Jupiter, like the planet of Jupiter, as if to drive the point home about his weird relationship with his mother. Does he? Yeah, he lives in the Great Red Spot. That's where the final act of the film happens. They don't address it enough. That wasn't clear <laughs> to me. No, they should address it. Since the film is to an extent about Jupiter, they don't mention that they're on Jupiter. Um, but that is that is where that happens. Wow. Um, okay. There's a daughter, Kalik Abrasix, um, played by Toppence Middleton. Um, her job is to explain to us about the youth serum and then drop out of the film forever. And then the the... Baby of the family, the third child, is Titus. Titus Abrasix is played by Douglas Booth, um, whom, not the first time we see him, but the second time we see him in the film, he's in the middle of a zero-gravity space orgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and his, his, like, servant comes in. Yeah. And he's like, only good news is allowed in here. He's <laughs> just fucking good vibes only, says Titus Brassix. <laughs> uh, yeah, and his vibes only in my zero gravity orgy, please. Um, and his role is uh, to explain more about the youth serum. So that's, those are the main people. We've got Jupiter and Cain are the kind of like main relationship. And then then this is the, the kind of three, let's say, bodies. Balam Abrasix is the main the main body is yeah. uh, Eddie Redmayne. Um, yeah, and like basically everybody is trying to trick Jupiter in some way. All all the bodies and everybody else is hired by them, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically the film. Is like you know, she's like she discovers uh, that she is this person and that she has this legacy, and then people. Her, like, children try to steal it from her. She just wanted to buy a telescope and... Yeah, and she wants to buy a telescope because her dad was an astronomer. Yes, sorry. There's, there's, like, an emotional link there. It's not like she just really wants a telescope. Yeah, I should I should <laughs> mention. Yeah, maybe we can drop this in earlier because it's pretty... So, Jupiter Jones, it seems like a mad name, especially for, like, a second-generation Russian immigrant to the United States, but she's called Jupiter Jones because her dad's favourite planet was Jupiter and he was 
an astronomer and mm-hmm. he was killed in a robbery in St. Petersburg. Yeah. And then her mom, played by Maria Doyle Kennedy, moved yeah. them to New York um, and named her Jupiter. She's pregnant at the time. Yeah. Why is Maria Doyle Kennedy playing a Russian? Who can say? Um, yeah, and so that's what I have for the characters. And then I have honourable mentions here because, like, anyway, I'm just like, it's a fun movie, which is why I'm having fun describing the characters. But uh, there are some serious looks and some serious, like, characterizations going on. Um, yeah. So I wanted to mention the goth bounty hunters who initially come for, come for her. Yeah. Got the blue kind of, like, what are they called? That like goth hair that's like, it's like dreads, but they're like um, plastic, big plastic dreads. Big plastic goth dreads. Um, and it's um, and it's Kimiko from, from Sensei there as one of the bounty hunters. And she's on this um, flying motorbike and she's got these steampunk goggles on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a cyber goth look is what, is what she yes. is going for there. Yes, incredible. And then there's another bounty hunter and he's got like a mohawk like made of feathers. Yeah. Um, and facial hair is also made of feathers. Uh, and then I have written here, Titus's Mr. Tomless looking ass handmaiden with the big ears and the horns <laughs> in her hair. <laughs> <laughs> I want to add to your honourable mentions. Mm-hmm. Are you done? Mm-hmm. Eddie Redmayne's knee-high sandals. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Iconic. You were rewatching it there yesterday and it was like just just really revelling in Eddie's looks. The, yeah. I mean, like, it's visually, like, stunning. It really, really is. Like it, the production design-wise is incredible. Yeah, like, the, the costuming is amazing. The... Like design of like the ships, yeah, is very very cool. And there's some like really great like space scenes mm. with like the ships and stuff. But yeah, the, and the best scene of the the film is um, Jupiter uh, has to go and get like basically like a cert to prove that she's the owner mm-hmm. of the Earth, and they have this like space bureaucracy planet. Yeah, they have to go. It's not really a planet; it's like a space station, mm. and they have to go there and like get all the forms and everything. You know, they have to go to all these different booths, and they yeah. they like send them to another booth. They're like, "Oh, you need this form before you can get the form that you need from here," and like it's just really fun, and uh, so it's the best part of the film. Yeah, it's it's um based on uh, Brazil um, by Terry Gilliam, and he's in that scene as well as one of the bureaucrats, the last one who gives her the thing. Um, because it's a direct homage to that Uh, it's very good so that's cool but yeah there's some really cool stuff the Sean B uh, Sean B's Sean B's B character lives in this cool like hive house and also I don't think the concept is terrible it's just like um, badly executed yeah I think I think for for me what like it feels kind of like politically um do you know what I'm, because it's like a very similar similar to the matrix right yeah you know that it's like people as kind of batteries yeah op- totally. operating capital like it's yeah. the, it's the same and it's like it's definitely trying to go for an anti-capitalism message yeah. and it's like some parts of that are very explicit yeah uh, in the dialogue and stuff mm. um but i just feel like it doesn't really achieve it jupiter gets like discovered 
Right, because she's got this plan to like sell her eggs. Yeah, her her brother, her brother seems to have had this plan. Her cousin. Yeah. Uh, um, Vla- Vladi. Um, and so they, I don't know, they know where to find her because her, I guess they must have taken a sample of her DNA. Yeah. Before she went to the clinic, but I mean, she like she gives a fake name, so they go to that person first, but then eventually they find her in the clinic. Um. But, like, she she's selling her eggs because she wants a telescope. Yes. And for some reason, her cousin... I think you get, like... She's getting, like, $10,000 for selling her eggs. Yeah, yeah. But she's giving her cousin, like, 7000 of those dollars. And she asks him in the film. She's like, wait, if, if they're my eggs... Or maybe she gets, like, $15,000. And she's like, sure. if they're my eggs, why are you getting $10,000 and I'm getting five? Yeah. And he's like... That's capitalism, babe. Shit rolls downhill. Profits flow up. And then he does, like, finger guns. Yes. And that's the end of the scene. Literally bizarre <laughs> and insane to me that he's, like, not textually a villain of the film. Like... reading this quote mm. your earth is a very small part of a very large industry feel my skin yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean that is I was that's like a note I didn't I didn't bring up but it's like I do have that in for Kalik it's just like she's only in the film for a brief moment but she does have the iconic line feel my skin <laughs> if, if some people at home are listening to this they may be thinking and what could possibly connect <laughs> Jupiter ascending and the red tree mm. and I would say when you find out please let me know because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure mm. I'm not sure either and I've spent a lot of time trying to um, connect them but um, I do have some vague thoughts mm. That I'd like to explore. Okay. And uh, yeah. <laughs> see, see if we can go somewhere. Yeah, let's ex- let's explore them. I think, like, there's probably two strands mm-hmm. that might link it. And I think you're going to talk about wolves mm-hmm. and dogs and hybrid creatures later. Yeah. 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 In a way, yeah. Um so I think that's definitely one. And I think the other one is much more abstract and mm-hmm. vague and is about sort of um, magic circles and, and belief, mm-hmm. I think. Sure, yeah. Uh, so there's like really quite early on in The Red Tree, there is a bit where she talks about this quote from uh, Joseph Campbell who's like a mythologist, real-world mythologist. Yeah, right? he's like the kind of theory of story kind yeah. of guy. Like, you, you'll you know him from the hero's journey. Mm. And actually, when you try to look up anything about Joseph Campbell, Joseph, Joseph Campbell, um, mostly all you can find is stuff about the hero's journey. Mm. Um, but he actually wrote loads and loads and loads of books um, about lots of different myths mm. related things 
so Sarah says, uh, there's a quote from Joseph Campbell that I've always really loved and it seems to apply here. So she's talking about sort of the red tree and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the quote is, draw a circle around a stone and thereafter the stone will become an incarnation of mystery or something to that effect. Clearly to my mind, a circle had been drawn around the old tree and no matter how many times I'd already seen it, no matter how ordinary a tree it in fact be, the story of doomed William and Susan Ames and everything else I'd read in those pages had traced a circle about the oak. And I'm sure Campbell would have agreed that if it's true for a stone, it's true for a tree. It's mm. <laughs> nice, yeah. Yeah, so William and Susan Ames are like a, a couple that are mentioned in the book and both of them uh, come to like a grisly end related to the tree. Mm. Like William does a, does a bunch of uh, murders. Because mm. um, he thinks some creatures who live under the tree are telling him to do them. Something mm. like that. Um, anyway, I tried to look up this quote um, by Joseph Campbell and I can't find it anywhere. I don't think it's real. <laughs> but he does... He does talk a lot about um, the power of sort of magic circles and the power of putting things in circles. So I found like two quotes that are, I think, saying the same thing. Mm. So yeah, in in The Power of Myth, uh, which is a Joseph Campbell book, he talks about sort of circles and stuff a lot. This quote is about a watch, but I think it's the same thing, right? Usually you think of a thing in practical terms, but you could think of anything in terms of its mystery. For example, this is a watch, but it's also a thing in being. You could put it down, draw a ring around it, and regard it in that dimension. That is the point of consecration. Do you really know what a thing is? What supports it? Is it something in time and space? Think how mysterious it is that anything should be. (laughs) The watch becomes the centre for a meditation, the centre of intelligible being, which is everywhere. The watch is not the centre of the universe. It is the still point in the turning world. Um, so yeah, I think he's just making the same point there. That like, um, you know, you kind of give power to things by giving them a, a reverence or like, mm. do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so drawing a circle around something gives it a, a sense of importance and a sense of uh, power. Um, and then he goes on much later in the book to talk about um, sort of magic circles in a much more magical sense, mm-hmm. right? So he says, when a magician wants to work magic, he puts a circle around himself. And it's it is within this bounded circle, this hermetically sealed off area, that powers can be brought into play that are lost outside the circle. So it's kind of this idea that's in a lot of fiction, Mm-hmm. about the magic circle right and how a lot of the time in fiction you have a like protective circle so like you put yourself in a circle and mm. it protects you from the outside world that can't enter through your protective circle and stuff like that um, and like Sarah talks a lot about it in the manuscript in the book when she goes out to visit the tree the first time mm. so something along the lines of like I can I can still only think of it as a tree, um, no matter how many circles people have drawn around it, mm. like Harvey and the the people of the town or whatever. Um, I can still only think of it as, as a tree. But then she has all these sort of um, ongoing 
supernatural experiences with the tree, right? So mm. the first time she goes out to the tree, nothing really happens. Mm. And she sits down and has, like, some lunch or whatever yeah. and goes home. Um, and then there's another woman who comes to live in the house whose name is Constance. And they go out and try to visit the tree and um, they can't get to it. Mm. They um, even though it's like like it's within view of the house, like yeah, like they can see it the whole time they're trying to get there, and they just <laughs> they just like keep walking and it never gets any closer. Fifteen or twenty minutes later, there was no longer any denying the fact that somehow the red tree had become a fixed point there to the north east of us, and that we should have already long since passed it and reached the edge of the pond. Um, but they never get there and they just have to like go home mm. uh, <laughs> which it's a really great like part of the book um, it's really like stressful yeah um, and it's like really disturbing because up until that point there's not really any sort of supernatural stuff so then by the time you get to sort of the end of the book um, uh, she starts talking about um, fairy circles um, because she goes out to the tree another time and finds this like jawbone mm. um, out there, right? And uh, she says, um, "The more I stare at the chunk of jawbone from my pocket, the more I think about tales of fairy gifts, or rather, the perils of accepting any manner of food or drink um, or gift while within the parameter of a fairy circle." Um, so basically, she's saying like, "Oh, I shouldn't have taken this jawbone because I was like in a fairy mm. circle. It's a bad idea." Um, she says the base of the tree is round and so many people have drawn circles about it repeatedly making of it a mystery to once again again paraphrase Joseph Campbell or merely underscoring the mystery that has always been so yeah anyway I really liked that part of the book and it reminded me of a book that I had read a few years ago called In the Dust of This Planet which is by Eugene Thacker, mm. um, that people like might have heard of because it had sort of a moment, <laughs> had a bit of a moment a few years ago. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> For a few reasons, uh, each is funnier than the last. Um, uh, the main one being that like Jay-Z wore a jacket that like on the back of it had sort of the cover, like the book cover. Yeah, like the title. The title of the book, but yeah. in the same font and everything as the book cover. It was very strange. Like, it's just the standard Zero Books font as well. Anyway. It's yeah. It's just a title. Um, yeah, sorry. And then, like, <laughs> anyway. Glenn, like, Glenn Beck, like, conservative commentator, like, made a video uh, about it, about kind of, like, the encroachment of nihilism into pop culture and, like, featured yeah. the jacket and was like, oh, it's about this book and, oh, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, and it was one of the, like, influences cited for True Detective Season 1 and yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's sort of like a a theory book um, mm. about, um, well, I don't know what we would say it's about. Well, it's kind, of, it's, about, it's kind of about horror. Yeah, it's uh, called the horror. It's called In the Dust of This Planet, Horror Philosophy Volume 1. Yeah, it's the horror equivalent of, um, of black metal theory, right? We're kind of using horror to talk about philosophy mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good. Like it's really like I mean, it's really um, great introduction to yeah. loads of ideas. Um, and it's great. Um, it's quite uh, easy to read yeah. as far as like theory books go. 
Um, it's quite like simple language and stuff like that. Um, so Takir talks a lot about um, magic circles in, in the Dust of Planet. He has like three sort of lectures on it mm-hmm. um, in the, I think it's in the second chapter. But yeah, like Thacker also talks about, so he talks about the magic circle as like a um, physical, actual magic circle, like a, a sort of, that contains like a pentagram and that kind of stuff. And most of the time in fiction, that is a safe space that you enter to protect yourself from some sort of outside mm. that's that's trying to like attack you or something like that. Um, but then he also talks about how there can be like abstractions of the magic circle. Um, and so he, he's given the example of like um, the story of Faust, right? And he says um, abstractions of the magic circle uh, appeared there as well, right? So there's a crowd of townspeople at a festival and they make a circle around Faust to commend him. At the same festival, there's an anonymous black dog that follows him around and makes circles around him. So obviously there's some uh, dog, black dog links there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's also like physical stuff. So um, Faust and Mephisto are having a, a discussion and the, the ladder is blocked from leaving Faust's study due to a magical pentagram that has been placed above the door. So you've kind of got these abstract ones and then like these more... Um, physical ones yeah but then he also says um, sort of later on uh, yeah the magic circle is typically protection its function is to govern the boundary between the natural and the supernatural be it in terms of acting as a protective barrier or in terms of invoking the supernatural from safety inside the circle Um, we can now take another step which is to consider instances in which the anomalies that occur are not inside or outside this magic circle but are anomalies of the magic circle itself this does not mean that the magic circle malfunctions or has been improperly drawn. In some cases, it may mean that the magic circle, as the boundary and mediation of the hidden world, reveals itself reveals some new property or propensity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like that just happens in the magic tree. Like the, the the tree is sort of given this power by these sort of abstractions of the magic circle that have been drawn around it. Mm. Do you know that it's it's like in the book, Sarah is like at the house for a good while before she finds the manuscript. Mm. And when she's reading the manuscript, she reads about the tree. But bef- I think before that, she says like, oh, and I really like saw the tree for the first time after I read the manuscript. Mm. But the tree's been there. Yeah, the it's like right outside the window. It's right yeah. outside the window. She's seen it. Yeah. But she's never really seen it Mm -hmm. before um, she reads the manuscript and so it's like even though she spends most of the book dismissing its power Mm. it's definitely got like a power over her Mm -hmm. um, that is definitely given to it by the fact that other people give it significance so yeah and I think there is instances of the magic circle in Jupiter Ascending in the way that they um, give Jupiter this power mm. based on a belief in DNA. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So they're like, she's the recurrence of her mother because she has the same DNA sequence. Yeah, of their mother, of, of Balam and Kalik's yeah. mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because Kalik, like, when she's explaining to Jupiter, like, 
you know, how she's this um, recurrence, what mm. they call her. She says, like, in our, word, in our world, genes have an almost spiritual significance. Mm. And, like, basically they, they only have a spiritual significance, right? Mm. Like, mm-hmm. there's no reason to give, um, to have Jupiter, like, inherit all of this stuff. Yeah. Except for that she's got the same DNA. Yeah, I mean, she, like, she's, like simply not the same person like she's still just jupiter and it's just like she just happens to have the same dna but like it's just like she doesn't have the memories or the soul of this other person yeah you know and presumably like i don't know that much about dna right Mm. but if you're in in this world where there are like uh thousands of other occupied planets Mm. that have like human like beings on them Mm. presumably the chances of the same DNA coming up I mean it's still going to be slim right but it's going to happen yeah because but I so to me that actually is kind of logically consistent um, because their uh, economy is racist right and it's built on Mm. Uh, supremacy of like the dominant race yeah and so like if they believe they have genetic superiority Mm -hmm. then it's like other people who share those genes you know they they should also inherit stuff yeah so yeah so they're kind of like but then but then it's like they kind of like believe you know Eddie Redmayne's character like Balan believes that but he also doesn't you know like he says like you know some people some people's lives are worth more than others you know yeah yeah um, but he doesn't believe that she's his mother, really, you know. No. You know, he's got whatever guilt he has about his mother. Um, um, yeah, but they've got they've got this sort of contractual obligation then to uh, treat her as if she is. Yeah, but what they're trying to do and before Cain shows up is, like, what they, they've been... The whole thing with her selling her eggs, the, that plot line is in there because... That's how they're hoping to find this recurrence. But Balaam's looking for the recurrence of his mother so he can kill her before yeah, he has yeah. to give her anything. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know because you know yeah. he doesn't believe it's her. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, and actually, what I will say is Constance in the Red Tree has a quote for that, um, where she's where they're talking about hauntings that they've kind of experienced mm-hmm. and they're sharing these haunting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Constance believes that she has seen. A kind of a ghost from the past, and that she's not a ghost, but like she's seen a woman from the past and has like changed the past. Yeah. Um, and she says, um, maybe it's not about souls or spirits at all. Maybe it's actually something that has a lot more to do with physics and how the universe operates. Mm-hmm. So it's just like interesting that she, yeah, that she thinks it's this like physical or metaphysical. Yeah, thing. yeah, because she's talking about like hauntings is like time travel almost mm. she she finds out later that Sorry. the woman that she saw as a ghost was like from like 40 years previous mm. and had written an account where she had seen Constance mm. as a ghost and so they both had this ghostly connection through mm. through time but yeah and then it's like and then you kind of you wonder about that and like Sarah's connection to other people who've been haunted by the tree Mm-hmm. in the kind of manuscript or whatever like to mm. what extent is it operating backwards as well as forwards well I do anyway that's yeah um, yeah 
Um, and I think like, uh, you know, that sort of thing about belief has like real world yeah. implications as well, right? Like obviously in terms of like monarchy and stuff, mm. because the the Abrasics, right, the, the siblings, they're not, they don't have like any special powers, or anything. No, they're just rich. They're just rich and old. Yeah. Um, and the only reason they're old is because they have the power to like mine all these planets, right? Mm. And they have this power because they're old and they've been around for a while, so they've been holding the power yes. for a very long time. But there's no reason for them to have power outside of that. So I just found I'd like I don't know. Yeah. I I think that that's maybe like a point that the. Wukowski's we're trying to make. Yeah, I think so. Because the thing about the... Yeah, because I think as well with the splices, right? With the human the human um, animal splices. Mm. is like, you know, like, Sean, you know, Stinger, Sean Bean's character, said, like, says that kind of, like, the, the splices are kind of, like, less than, right? They're, like, this inferior... They're yeah. seen as genetically inferior. Um, and, like, it's, it's clearly just a, like, political decision yeah that they have to be seen that way because actually they've got superpowers which like the other guys don't have do you know what I mean yeah like, yeah they can fly you know yeah. like Sean Bean I mean I don't under he doesn't have any powers he's just part B he can just he's just very loyal which is like not really a B trait <laughs> but anyway that's what he has but you know Kane Wise can you know he's got rocket boots he's got wings he can smell a gene halfway across the universe mm-hmm they're better on like evolutionary level, um, but like yeah, yeah, those white supremacy vibes, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, big time. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're dead right in terms of like uh, certainly for Jupiter sending in terms of like creating that thing about DNA really, um, really I suppose kind of like holds a mirror up to like capitalism as we have it. Yeah. On Earth, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like the the thing about capitalism like obviously um not obviously but but we have been like engaging with a lot of mark fisher mm. um recently just so we're doing um like a reading group about mark fisher uh mark fisher's like last lectures and stuff um but he like talked about that a lot on the cake pump blog that he had yeah about like this sort of belief in capitalism I'm really, like, oversimplifying it, but, like, the mm. disbelief in capitalism, like, perpetuates it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he just, like, he just has this quote where he's talking about um, Zizek. Mm. And um, he says, like, one of Zizek's uh, greatest strengths has always been his hyperstitional account of the way in which capitalism runs uh, by generating beliefs and behaviours. Um, so, like, behaviour anticipates belief in... In a causal, not near, merely predictive sense, um, perhaps that isn't going to be enough. What would be better to say? It would be better to say that behaviours are already beliefs. Um, and he just kind of goes on to say, like, people know perfectly well that money is only a token, that commodities aren't alive, um, yet they behave as if money is real substantially and that commodities are, commodities are a natural force. And, like, maybe that's kind of the point the film was trying to make was just kind of this um yeah I, I think it just connects the two texts in in that way that mm. like 
giving things power by sort of believing in them. Mm. Sort of, or like two key themes. Yeah, I yeah. Think. And that it, just because it's, quote, only a belief doesn't mean it can be easily undone. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. I don't know if this will fit in anywhere. Mm. Um, there's just like a good quote from that K-Punk blog where Mark Fisher is like, you know, how do we dispense with the fictions that we have? Mm. Um, and he basically says, uh, we have to conclude the only way to rid ourselves of such fic- fictions is to practice new behaviours and new rituals. Mm. Um, and that is, is inseparable, inseparable from the question of new economic models. Uh, so he's obviously talking about it in the context of capitalism, but like, um, you know, the idea that the, the tree was originally like not a quote evil tree, yeah. but they sort of, you know, made it so by practicing these sort of, yeah, you know, darker rituals, you know, because they talk about sort of the sacrificial altar and stuff mm. that was apparently there, but like there's questions about whether that was a sacrificial altar, mm. but the stories that they tell about it now, it is. Yeah, it ultimately kind know, of did, did, did become one. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, then it becomes one yeah. in the course of the book. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's just, it's <laughs> just something. Yeah. yeah, I think that's definitely um, a connection for sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, I was going to say um, regarding the, the yeah, behaviours and moulding different beliefs and different realities. Mm. Um, it's because I'm, yeah, currently, yeah, doing a bit of um, uh, CBT, right? Like cognitive behavioural therapy. Mm-hmm. And that that's the like, you know, that that's the loop that it's like behaviours and thoughts and feelings. And it's like, you can't change the feelings but like you can't change them directly mm-hmm. but like you can challenge the thoughts and you can change the behaviors mm-hmm. you know and so it, and it creates a it's a loop like you just have to do a different thing over and over again and like stop doing the thing that you usually do which is like a crotch or whatever you know um this is for your sleep yeah it's what i'm doing for my sleep at the moment yeah well you know i mean because because i'm very anxious like I kind of uh try try to do that anyway um you know try to uh, kind of engage with negative automatic thoughts with a different uh with a different response you know Mm, yeah um I kind of acknowledge them as thoughts rather than just the feeling Mm -hmm. you know The other, I don't even know if it's what you call it a theme, but like a connection mm-hmm. um, between the two texts is these animal-human hybrids. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, this ties into what I actually see as the like very specific connection between the two texts, mm-hmm. um, which is that both texts, both the Red Tree and Jupiter Ascending, mm-hmm. deal with a like grieving person being haunted by their deceased loved one in the form of a new living person 
Sure, yeah. Because when you see the red, so the red tree and Jupiter ascending seem totally different. Mm. But if you don't think of Jupiter as the protagonist, yeah. if Balaam's the protagonist, they're the same. <laughs> um, because, cause, which I think you absolutely can, because like Sarah, yes, is the protagonist of the red tree, but she's not like the good guy or whatever. Sure, yeah. You know? Um, yeah. She's also kind of, yeah, like she's also kind of like the antagonist of it. Um and yeah, so she's kind of like being haunted by her girlfriend, um, mm-hmm. Amanda, um, and she feels responsible for her death. You know, mm-hmm. and we don't really find out kind of why uh, for a long time, but uh, she clearly has some part in it. And they had this kind of like complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's being haunted by her in her dreams, and also like uh, Constance is like reminding her of her, and like mm. clearly she's like displacing a lot. Of, of stuff onto, onto Constance mm-hmm. and onto and likewise like Balaam doesn't really believe Jupiter's his mother but also like she looks like his mother and is a vessel for his like guilt over you know his relationship with his mother which is also complicated because he he loved her he says that many times but also mm-hmm. like he's clearly willing to get her out of the way you know to keep his money you know you seem on board with this connection so far <laughs> That the that from that perspective they're the same. I'm I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed at what you've done here. Just a, a radical rereading. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and and so there's like so much like doubling going on in 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 the two texts that I can see certainly in the red tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, which I don't, I don't think that we mentioned in the um, the recap of the red tree, but there uh, are like wolves are a big theme. Like so, there's there's these sightings of wolves related to the tree. Yeah. Um, there's like these sightings of like a woman with a wolf. Sarah has these dreams of like a woman with like a wolf as like a lover. Mm. Um, Constance hears a wolf outside the house. Um, you know, there's all this kind of thing. Yeah, and so so I've looked into werewolves because of that. There is kind of the implication of, of like werewolves going on, but it's also because uh, this is actually a theme in in Kiernan's work, right? So there's this editor's note at the end of the Red Tree, um, which is just another short story or the start of a short story. It doesn't seem oh, yeah. to bear any relationship to the story we've just read. And it ends talking about with a woman telling another story. She starts to tell another story. It says, Not long ago, there was a very talented painter named um, Albert Perrault. But before he could finish what would have been his greatest painting, he died in a motorcycle accident in Paris. Mm. Um, Caitlin Lerner's next book, is The Drowning Girl, uh, features quite heavily the paintings of Albert Perrault, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and The Drowning Girl is as she... as the protagonist puts it, a ghost story with a mermaid and a wolf, which kind of this is as well, because Sarah has this, Sarah in the Red Tree mm-hmm. has her haunting memory is like seeing this woman this kind of ghostly woman at a lake as a child. Yeah. Um, and so Albert Perrault, this painter, right, he's describing the Renegade girl as um, a man who called himself Albert Perrault, although that wasn't the name he was given at birth. Mm-hmm. So he's taken that name from Charles Perrault, who's the man who wrote the, what is believed to be the earliest written version of Red Riding Hood. 
Okay. Um, in kind of this collection of, of fairy tales. Um, and that was in 1697, right? So, and in that version, there's no happy ending. Mm-hmm. So the Red, Red Riding Hood and the grandmother both die. And there's like a warning at the end that, can exp- like, that, that makes it explicit that this is like about female sexuality. And it's like, you know, and says like the most dangerous wolves um, have no hair, you know, have no fur. And like, you know, walk among us and like charm young girls. Right. Right. So it's like the dangerous man and the dangerous female sexuality. Right. So like, that's, okay. that's so, so yeah. So, so the drowning girl was also like kind of obsessed with this kind of like Red Riding Hood kind of like, and like wolf myth and like it brings in a whole other different direction but it's mm-hmm. like um but yeah that's 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 the connection there um but i also think obviously werewolves are kind of a theme of like horror for us now and they're not necessarily um associated with the gothic but are not not associated with the gothic and i think there's <laughs> there's definitely I'm not trying to pun but like but yeah I think there's an overlap right yeah um and I do think not that like Jupiter's ending is primarily a gothic text but I mm. think it absolutely can be read like that um you know as like she's brought into like a world of intrigue and has to find her place it's kind of got shades of like Rebecca where it's like there's this kind of transgressive like incest not quite incest stuff with Titus where he's trying to marry her and mm, whatever mm-hmm. there's this like uh why it reminds Rebecca it's just that she's brought into this new kind of class and has to like navigate yeah that. for sure yeah um and like people already have thoughts about her based on who she's replacing yeah you know that she's like comes in as a ghost almost and she's haunted by this previous person well yeah it's like you could have the exact same story in like like something like pride and prejudice Mm -hmm. or whatever yeah yeah and so i then so i looked into the gothic and i and i a little bit and i and i looked into into werewolves um because both Mm -hmm. of them are about not about but like one aspect of them is like um doubles right um Mm -hmm. this kind of figure of the doubler the doppelganger so one of the books that I, not one of the books, sorry. One of the uh, pieces that I looked at was called Lesbian Gothic, mm-hmm. um, Genre, Transformation, Transgression by Paulina Palmer. Um, and actually this kind of like tied in for me about um, when you're talking about the magic circle and mm-hmm. like boundaries being kind of expanded and redrawn and, and kind of mm-hmm. pushed past is that, that like transgression comes up a lot, both with kind of lesbians and any kind of um, transgressive sexuality or like gender identity mm-hmm. and werewolves right and these like these hybrid forms mm-hmm. um and so they're often used as like a stand-in one is used as stand-in for the other mm-hmm. because they demonstrate the kind of falsehood of like the heterosexual economy or yeah. you know the quote like real world so i'm like really getting ahead of myself here <laughs> like summarizing <laughs> but yeah so this this um lesbian gothic um essay is it's, it's taking off from her book. She has a full book. But this, this essay um, is an address to Cambridge's lesbian line. Mm-hmm. And so Palmer says that um, essentially the kind of two main things connect the figure of the lesbian and the, the idea of the gothic. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so one of them is the idea of kind of excess. She's kind of talking through the ideas of, of Bonnie Zimmerman um, and says that 
all the kind of different historical definitions of kind of lesbian all have in common that they depict the lesbian as a quote disruptive transgressive influence who by rejecting the roles of specular other of man and object of exchange conventionally assigned to woman displays a quote desire which functions as excess within the heterosexual economy it's like this desire that there isn't a place for within the heterosexual economy right Uh, and so then Palmer says the focus on excess ideological and literary which lesbian and gothic share is a key factor in explaining the appeal which gothic motifs hold for contemporary writers of lesbian fiction so Mm -hmm. um and I I see a few kind of expressions of this in both the texts Mm -hmm. so like Jupiter the her whole the whole thing about her one this telescope as like her family don't understand this kind of like desire that she has it's like above where she you know she, mm. it's like this notions you know yeah that she has of like stargazing which is like totally at odds with her being like cleaning toilets for a living you know? yeah and then it also reminds me of like sarah's like indulgent writing with all the dream sequences and the like digressions that it's like always like too much you know mm-hmm. um and amanda her ex's her ex her like her ex-girlfriend uh was a photo artists like made these photo montages yeah um of like impossible hybrids which are often animal human hybrids mm-hmm. uh which were like sometimes sexual not always but like the the very kind of like excess and like too muchness and like uh impossibleness of them mm. like really appeals to sarah like it really like Mm. Uh, like it just like turns around, you know what I mean? Like I mean, and that's a horny book as well. I will say. Oh, it's very horny. Oh, it's... <laughs> oh you've totally forgot to mention. Totally <laughs> forgot to mention. But horny, horny it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, for for me, that was like a total example of like excess overspilling the bounds of like, you know, human and animal of like sure conventional sexual desires. Um, you know, because like that's like why she and Amanda first have sex, you know, because uh, she like yeah. shows you these like pictures. She's like, oh, they're so horny. <laughs> She's like, it's too much. We gotta fuck. <laughs> I must fuck. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then the other the other connection between kind of the figure of the lesbian and gothic literature is, you know, that gothic literature kind of already and always has had this like historical association with. Uh, female authorship mm. and also deals with like quote like female concerns let's say yeah i will get into the messy history of what people call female gothic but i won't even bother it's messy <laughs> nobody can decide um <laughs> but yeah so like female concerns such as like being trapped in kind of the home like the domestic sphere you know yeah um so that's like rebecca or whatever her problematic relationship with her body and especially relevant to lesbian writers and readers female sexuality and relationships mm-hmm um, uh, and then, uh, you know, another aspect of Gothic which makes it suitable for lesbian recasting is that, as Rosemary Jackson and Anne Cranny Francis argue, texts exemplifying the genre frequently question mainstream versions of reality and the so-called, quote, normal values they inscribe. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we've got, like, Entrapment in the Domestic Sphere, Jupiter, like, in her, like, cleaning role. Yeah. Um, the problematic relationship with body, I see the connection with the, like her eggs you know her body's not her own mm. jupiter's isn't yeah like for some reason her her cousin has a stake in it for <laughs> no reason whatsoever yeah and then it's literally not her own somebody is like you're not you yeah yeah you know yeah 
Um, You've got my mom's DNA. You got my mom's DNA, and now you have to like take on all my shit about my mother. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> um, and the thing about Sarah is that she has recently started having these seizures, mm-hmm. and so she realizes quite early on that she's missing time. And so this is what has kind of you, the reader, start to doubt the reality of like, yeah, yeah. Her, you know, that's what makes her an unreliable narrator. But it's also like mm. really frustrating to her. You know, and her partners kind of seem to resent her having this like this this disability. Yeah, know? yeah, uh, yeah. And then in terms of like sexuality and relationships, obviously there's like um, Jupiter's literally transgressive attraction to this wolf man, <laughs> this dog man. Are you gonna t- do that quote of her? She says she likes dogs. Oh, <laughs> I've heard that. He says because he's he's telling her like. You know, you're you're uh, entitled and I'm just a splice. And he says, I have more in common with a dog than I have with you. And she says, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. <laughs> um, I actually love dogs, so it's, like, not a problem at all. It's not a problem. And he's like, okay, gotta go. And then, like, he leaves and she's like, I love dogs. What, like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I, I completely forgot that they were just called the entitled. We could have just been calling them that the entire time. Um, mm. Yeah, that's what the entitled class are called. In Jupiter Sending, they're called the entitled. There's no messing around. Um, and then in terms of the red tree, like Sarah's gay, obviously, but mm. also she like it is attracted kind of exclusively to these women who are really like mean to her. Yeah. And like who she kind of already resents before they even begin yeah. her relationship. Um like she clear like when she t- first has a chat with Constance, she's like she says she claims to be bisexual. That's, that's, how, that's how she tells you Constance is bisexual. Yeah, yeah. And Constance is a great deal younger than her as well, mm, mm-hmm. um, which they kind of make a point out of in the book. Yeah, Sarah's kind of like late forties. Yeah, um, and Constance is like what, like just finished college or something, something like, like that, like maybe yeah. early twenties. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, so there's those, um, kind of gothic, um, connections. Uh, and yeah, and then so Palmer goes on to talk about the kind of, the motif of the double in, in gothic literature and in terms of its, like, specific, uh, lesbian rev- resonance. Mm. Um, she says, the double is a signifier of psychic division. Um, it has been defined in psychoanalytic terms as a projection outward onto a related figure of aspects of one o- one's own mental conflict. Then she says it's, it can be ambiguous, like it may give you a sense of kind of liberation or it may be an aspect of the self that you kind of feel guilty about or anxious and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, it resembles in this respect the concept of the abject, which according to Julia Kristeva fascinates at the same time as it repels. These ideas are pertinent to the lesbian who, encouraged by homophobic attitudes to keep her sexual orientation secret and lead a double life, frequently becomes a figure of psychic division. Mm-hmm. So she says kind of um, typically in Gothic texts, there's kind of like two uses um, uh, of, of the double regarding this. So either for the, for the out lesbian, mm-hmm. the double is the kind of like hidden anxiety. And for the closet lesbian, the double can often be this like liberated or kind of like sexually open self. Sure, yeah. Right. Um, but that's not really the case in the red tree that I can tell. And it's not the case in all the texts that Palmer talks about. So it's not a hard and fast rule. It's just like mm. an example, you know. Yeah, so there's just like this 
I don't know, this like web of doubles in especially in the red the red tree, you know, because mm-hmm. there's like the doubling of like writer and her girlfriend is like Amanda's doubled because she's Amanda, but she's also that's not her real name. Yeah. You know, Constance probably not her real name. Yeah. Like she's doubled there's another story, short story in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Which is like clearly also about Sarah and Amanda. Yeah. Which in which they have different names again. Yeah. Um and then there's like the wolf who's with the like woman from the tree. But yeah, I mean I get into this with the werewolf stuff, but for me my tendency is to read the wolf as like as kind of Sarah's double she refers to herself sometimes as the paranoid woman. Mm. Um like when she does these awful things and like pushes people away. Yeah. You yeah. know. Um um, and it's like really angry and like quite aggressive, you know, um, in this way that she sometimes wants to mm. um, kind of separate herself from. So that's kind of the double in general. So in terms of um, werewolves, the texts, I suppose, are kind of relatively arbitrary um, that, that, that I've chosen. But I'm, I, you know, I think they're quite interesting. Um, so one of the texts um, that I was using was a... A master's thesis from from 2008 by Elizabeth Clark called mm-hmm. Hairy Thuggish Women, Female Werewolves, Gender and the Hope for a Monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Clark is attempting to locate the kind of figure of the female werewolf in horror films specifically, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of kind of the possibilities that it offers for new gendered spaces and embodiments and the, the limitations of that, you know, how that how that can fail, how depictions can like fall into these kind of conservative gendered ideas and also how audiences can 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 interpret things um, yeah yeah so clark she is drawing on this idea of the monstrous feminine which is a concept from barbara creed but ultimately she, the term that she uses is um masculine female grotesque right to describe um the transgression of on-screen female werewolves into kind of masculine coded behaviors and appearance uh, and one, one thing she says, she says, female werewolves offer a potential site of one kind of visual representation of the unruly woman, the woman who flouts gender conventions by being loud, angry and powerful. The, I think I mentioned before that the, the kind of what the Wachowskis say the influences were on mm. the story of Jupiter Sending were the Odyssey and the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. The, aim, the aim with the Wizard of Oz connection was to like make, quote, a different kind of female hero, which I, I don't know that they have done. Um, yeah. So, th- so this is this is Lana. Lana says to the Toronto Sun, she says, "We were like, can we bring a different kind of female character, like Dorothy or Alice, characters who negotiate conflict and complex situations with intelligence and empathy?" Mm-hmm. Yes, Dorothy has a protector, Toto, who's always barking at everyone, and that was sort of the origin of Cain. Lana adds with a chuckle, Cain being the space bounty hunter, a wolf-human hybrid played by Channing Tatum. So yeah, that's the that's who he is. He's the wee dog from Wizard of Oz. Okay, Lana. If you say if that's what you say, um, but yeah, I think he's kind of like he's quite sexualized though. I suppose that's true, yeah. Film. Yeah, he is quite sexy, and he's like, I think they kind of almost do succeed. So what that, what that's in relation to, that quote, why I have it there, mm. is in relation to this um, connection that Elizabeth Clark draws between female werewolves and the female action hero, mm-hmm. um, where both are kind of, like, given masculine traits on top of, like, female traits. Yeah. 
And Lana, in this like interview with the Toronto Sun, mm. it starts off with um, Lana Wachowski being like, Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games is a man. <laughs> right? That's how, she, that's how she begins the interview. Um, right. Because she's like, it's a male character. Like, you've just put a woman in there. Sure. But, like, stoic and, like, hunter and whatever, you know. I mean, okay. I'm not going to get into the Hunger Games. I'm not going to get into, like, defense of the Hunger Games sure. or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that's... I don't know if, like, she was asked specifically about the Hunger Games. I think there's probably, like, lots of other um, women action characters that you could level that accusation up before you get to Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games. No, well, so, so to, to be clear, so the question was, why cast Mila Kunis? Why not cast someone like, for example, Jennifer Lawrence? Right, right. right. So, because She's like, Jennifer Lawrence is a man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the opening. You're just like, what? As in, wow. like, what? Just like, yeah, just, like, just like, I ask, if the intention was to do an action film with a female lead, why cast someone small and physically unimposing like Kunis instead of, say, Jennifer Lawrence? I mean, they're the same size. What are you talking about? <laughs> so... Is this a male interviewer, Ryan Jones? I don't even think it is. What the fuck? So after a surprise laugh, I ask, I ask how Lawrence is a man. She asks her, she acts her character like a man. She's emotionally withholding and strong and stoic. She kicks ass when she has to. She's a killer with a crossbow. It's fine to have a male narrative told with females, but we were like, can we bring a different kind of female character like Dorothy or Alice? So that's how that right, comes okay. in. Yeah, yeah. Although the thing that, that that does kind of justify that her perspective for me is the fact. They're like, why did you choose someone small like Mila Kunis instead of Jennifer Lawrence, a totally normal and small woman? Um, because like Clark makes this point that like not makes this point. I don't want to like put words in her mouth, but what I took from it was that mm-hmm. like even things that are not fantasy with female heroes are often like t- brought into the realm of fantasy by the insistence on casting these like straight sides muscular women yeah so that they can still be sexualized by the audience yeah and then having them perform these feats of strength which are not possible mm. with their like little sexy bodies yeah right like sure yeah um and so like yeah that's the so in that way it's like a werewolf you know with like superhuman strength yeah yeah because um, not that like women can't be strong or whatever but that that like there's this conflict between the like mm. sexual object ideal yeah. Um, that these characters and actresses are being asked to, like, fulfil. Yeah. I mean, we could go on a tangent about Captain Marvel here, but, like, will they? <laughs> <laughs> we could, yeah. Oh, like, because when... I... <laughs> it's just, like, the 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 way when when Captain Marvel came out, there's all this stuff online about how Brie Larson, you know, didn't smile enough and all this stuff in the posters. Also that she... Um, was too weak to do the action that she was supposed to be doing. Like, she didn't look like she had the muscles to do the action that she was supposed to be doing or whatever. But then, like, Brie Larson sort of, like, on Instagram was like, here's videos of me training. Mm-hmm. Like, here's here's videos of me, like, lifting all these weights or whatever. And it was just, like, very strange because, like you say, most women action, mm. you know, stars don't look like they could do the stuff anyway. Mm. Um, and like women typically just don't look as muscular or whatever yeah but, even if they are yeah yeah. but um, it was just sort of like this weird weird accusation 
Yeah, um, I mean, it didn't make any sense. The whole thing is the whole thing is completely weird. Well, yeah, because I, I, like when I because when I read was reading this section, I was thinking about um, uh, Wonder Woman, right? And mm. my my aunt didn't like Wonder Woman, and she was talking to me about it, and like she was saying the same thing. She was like, "It's a, it's a not not that, not that she was a man, but it was like that like the way to make a like strong female character is not just." By making her strong like a man. Mm, yeah. Um, which, like, I do agree with. But then I was mm. thinking about it more today. And I think that, like, the the bigger issue is, like, that, like, movies just, like, don't see violence as, like, as pathological as we do in real life. Yeah. You know? Like, that's the, that's the, that's what strength looks like in movies, you know? Yeah. Is, is like, physical strength and, like... Um, yeah, violence. Yeah, yeah. I also don't think that um, the Wachowskis have succeeded. No, in this goal of making a, because all they've made is a damsel in distress who's like an yeah. idiot. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's, what I mean? that's what I was saying earlier. Like she just wants a telescope. That's all she does is like she just wants a telescope and she just like tells people, "I'm not your mother," but yeah. like. Like what is she bringing to proceedings? Yeah, yeah. Like she's not. She's not like solving um, conflicts with like, you know, her brain instead of brawn or whatever. She's because she's not. She doesn't really solve anything. She solves nothing. And then like she's you know obviously like really brave at the end and like refuses to sell the earth or whatever. Yeah. Um. But like I don't think they really they don't really succeed in like. No. Uh, making this new kind of. Uh, female action star or anything like that no but also you can't say I want to make a new kind of hero like these two previous heroes yeah yeah. (laughs) like it's yeah I don't know it's really frustrating because for me what I find frustrating about the strong female character who's literally strong like and how that's kind of interpreted in like action and stuff like that is like and how it fails you know in like for example in like the case of Captain Marvel or whatever and people Mm. taking holes in it Mm. is because, you know, we haven't changed the perception of, like, what strong is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, like, that on-screen perception is going to favour, like, men and going to favour mm-hmm. this, like, masculine, these, like, quote, masculine traits, you know? Yeah. And so then when you put, like, a female character into that and, like, uh, like in Jupiter Ascending or whatever, you put mm. a female character into that and you say, she's not going to fight. Mm. And then create use all the same storytelling devices that make fighting the best option. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, then you've made... You've weakened her in the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And she just has to be rescued by a man who, who is going to do fighting. Yeah. Okay, so that's the kind of, like, female um, action hero. And then I suppose kind of back to the kind of, like, monster, right? Like, the, the werewolf thing, right? Mm. Um, so monsters have kind of, like, in her kind of traditionally been this kind of... Um, scapegoat of kind of the cultural imagination um Mm -hmm. uh, and often kind of like can typify i don't know i suppose like unwanted attributes or whatever um Mm -hmm. which is why they will tend to embody kind of like the like racist attitudes of whatever uh culture as well as uh, and like homophobic attitudes you know that they'll they'll kind of naturally take those on uh unless you kind of um fight against that Mm. um but they can also be uh, reframed as um, the kind of 
hopeful monster, as Clark puts it. Um, and in some cases, the kind of figure of the monster can be like reclaimed, especially by queer people, mm-hmm. right? Which I have a couple of, uh, of examples of, which are really good. So in Monsters in the Closet, Harry Beshoff um, discusses the uh, figure of the kind of monstrous queer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but acknowledges that um, that may be um, an alluring or progressive figure to some, while to others it's a still a social threat which must be eradicated. Um, mm-hmm. So not all queer viewers embrace kinship with on-screen monsters, a figure of a kind of monster in relation to society, and some prefer kind of uh, assimilation, you know? Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth Clark then references a, co- a few texts in terms of the, like, uh, queer and, like, specific, like trans possibilities of kind of, like, um, identifying with monsters, right? Uh, one of them is, is this piece called Monster Trans um, by uh, Boots Potential, and it's about general identification with, with monsters and, mm. and, and horror figures. Uh, so they say, um, Cultivating my monster identity preceded me identifying as trans, it was clear to me that I was involved in some sort of gender subversion project. For a long time, my queerness has been in large part about widening possibilities of gender expression. I didn't and still don't buy the story that there's something fundamentally dichotomous about gender and that there are inherent or genetic characteristics that lead to expressions of femininity or masculinity, whatever those mean. Unfortunately, being in queer communities didn't necessarily mean that people agreed with me on that point. In fact, uh, in fact, many homos that I know are quite wedded to conventional understandings of gender and its rules of conduct. Um, when I became frustrated with all of these play-by-the-rules queers, I sought out free queer communities. Some did drag, some put on rock operas about animal-human creatures that subvert <laughs> the futuristic corporate stranglehold on the world. <laughs> we've been to one of those. First of all, we've been to one of those. <laughs> Second of all, Jupiter sending anybody? <laughs> Yeah, with these people, I found a number of things I was looking for. Political engagement, creativity, an unquenchable urge to fuck shit up, and most importantly, (laughs) a passion for boundary transgression and rule-breaking. In and through my work and play with these communities, conversations, drag acts, writings, and so on, my fascination with monsters moved from spectatorship to embodiment. I became the monsters I used to watch. So that's what Boost Potential has to say about it, which is like really clear Mm -hmm. um, language. Um, And then another really great piece which I as far as I could tell has like become somewhat iconic um uh it's by Susan Stryker from 1993 and it is called My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix uh mm-hmm. a subtitle Performing Transgender Rage which again like well worth a read pretty short and this was originally a performance piece um from 93 um given at an event called Rage Across the Disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of the title and the kind of framing of it is that it echoes the confrontation between Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster in Frankenstein, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, here's, the, here's the quote that kind of reveals the connection, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, in the performance. It says, I find a deep affinity between myself as a transsexual woman and the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like the monster, I am, too, I am too often perceived as less than fully human due to the means of my embodiment. Like the monsters as well, my exclusion from the hum- human community fuels a deep and abiding rage in me that I, like the monster, direct against the conditions in which I must struggle to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, so this from 1993. So th- there's a you know distinction in in her piece between transsexual and transgender, but like she finds you know she's using transgender as an umbrella term, but um, mm-hmm. uh, is using transsexual because like because it's it's what's at issue with um, in terms of her own em- embodiment and like the critiques from gender gender critical feminists, let's say mm-hmm. um, that she's uh, kind of addressing yeah as though they're victor frankenstein right uh so so striking that is like she locates these like um uh initial conflations of of like transgender and specifically like uh transsexual bodies and people with frankenstein's monster in the in in, like trans critical writing right so Mm -hmm. like like turfs are conflating the two right they're conflating transgender people with frankenstein's monster okay um in, yeah, and these like really like uh, awful ways. So like initially, this like Mary Daly um, in a piece called "Boundary Violation and the Frankenstein Phenomenon," right? Like mm. this, how she's referring to it. Stryker says um, it is a commonplace of literary criticism to note that Frankenstein's monster is his own dark romantic double, the alien other he constructs, and upon which he projects all he cannot accept in himself. Mm-hmm. Indeed, Frankenstein calls the monster my own vampire, my own spirit set loose from the grave. Uh, and she suggests that these anti-trans writers, such as Daly, are similarly projecting their own anxieties onto transgender people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like in horror movies where like we're projecting cultural anxieties onto the monster, you know? Yeah. Um, and by like using this term of monster, the, the people using it are kind of like revealing their own fears, you know, mm-hmm. more so than saying anything about the people that they're talking about. Yeah. And so then... That's where she takes this urge to like reclaim the 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 term and the identity, right? Mm-hmm. She says, "I want to lay claim to the dark power of my monstrous identity without using it as a weapon against others or being wounded by it myself." Uh, she says, "I will say this as bluntly as I know: I am a transsexual, and therefore I am a monster." Right. So and she goes on um, and talks about the need to reclaim words like creature, monster, and unnatural mm-hmm. by embracing and accepting them. Even piling one on top of another, we may dispel their ability to harm us. A creature, after all, in the dominant tradition of Western European culture, is nothing other than a created being, a made thing. The affront you humans take at being called a creature results from the threat the term poses to your status as lords of creation, beings elevated above mere material existence. As in the case of being called it, being called a creature suggests lack or loss of superior personhood. Mm-hmm. I find no shame, however, in acknowledging my egalitarian relationship with non-human material being. Everything emerges from the same matrix of possibilities. Monster is derived from the Latin noun monstrum, divine portent, itself formed on the root of the verb monere, to warn. It came to refer to living things of anomalous shape or structure, or to fabulous creatures like the Sphinx, who were composed of strikingly incongruous parts because the ancients consider the appearance of such beings to be a sign of some impending supernatural event. Monsters, like angels, function as messengers and heralds of the extraordinary. They serve to announce impending revelation, saying, in effect, pay attention, something of profound importance is happening. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a brilliant address, um, mm-hmm. and there's a great, um, you know, she, she kind of lays out the theory then afterwards um, in, in the kind of written version. But uh, but yeah, I, I think I mean first of all, it's, I mean it's, I think it's kind of um, uh, beautiful, but I think it's also uh, 
also relevant to the text at hand. The idea, you know, yeah, the, it just reminds me of the kind of like the like, you know, purity kind of discourse in Jupiter ascending, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and also then uh, a monster and kind of hybrid animal, uh, you know, connections and kind of like the fear of that connection that Sarah has in the red tree. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because um, Jupiter Ascending is two like trans women writers and directors, um, mm-hmm. and uh, then the Red Tree, uh, like Caitlin Arcane, is gender fluid. So, yeah, so there just seemed to be some like gender, some gender stuff going on there in the two of them. Yeah, I don't know if there's much because obviously there's a lot uh, written about the Matrix and how it's, uh, you know, a, a trans parable or yeah, whatever. I don't know if that, if much of that has been applied to, like Jupiter Sunday. Yeah, like it, on on the face of it, it's like a pretty, like generically, hetero, um, mm. like you know, and like pretty normative kind of yeah um, story. But again, it's like I think. But so is the Matrix. But so is the Matrix. The it's it, true. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and and I think, like. I think now there's this kind of expectation of, of like representation and like that, the, but that's not ever how kind of like queer reading of texts has like happened historically. Mm, yeah. And like all of the trappings of like the, the Gothic, like I was saying, are there in Jupiter ascending the like mm. transgressive sexualities, mm-hmm. the, you know, like the, the like complicated relationships with mothers, like, and, and those all like have historical kind of historically have had, other significations, you know. But yeah, I don't. I think that those things are in there, and the hybrid thing is of interest. Yeah, mm. like two presenting is a film, right? It's too long, but even at that, it doesn't have time to like get into all these ideas that it brings up. But I think it yeah. does bring up some really interesting ideas in terms of like identity and uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it just. I wish it did more with what it brings up. Yes, yeah. yeah. But I think the Red Tree explores um, its own themes a lot more effectively than Jupiter Ascending does. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it would be good to talk about... Um, when we started recording this episode, we um, didn't know that Caitlin O'Kiernan was um, gender fluid, right? Yeah. Because they only came out in April, like this year. But I thought they're, uh, like, basically we just found, like, a statement on their blog from April, um, which I actually thought was really interesting and sort of, I think, relevant yeah. to the text in some way. Um, so I think I'll just, like, read it. Sure, or yeah. Or read some of it anyway. So they say, so there's something I've been getting around to saying for about three years now, and it's finally come to the moment when I feel I ought to get it over with. I no longer consider myself transgender or transsexual. I would say that I'm gender fluid if I had to say anything. If the options that are now that are now available to young people had been available to me when I was in my 20s, brackets the 80s, I would likely never have thought of myself as trans and I likely wouldn't have transitioned. But when I began seeing psychiatrists, um, 
there was not some non-binary diagnostic option. And many of us did turn to psychiatrists over gender, sex and sexual orientation back then. It was all pretty black and white. For better or worse, I chose the box that best described me. There's nothing intentionally political in this statement. It doesn't necessarily... I don't necessarily mean it as a show of solidarity with anyone or any group. It comes with absolutely no political agenda attached. It's personal. It's just who I am. And I'm only really making it public because Wikipedia and other places list me as being something I probably never have been. It's also in no way meant as any sort of slight to transgender people, not in the least. It's just I understand much more about myself than I did, say, in 1985. And I'd like to set the record straight. I prefer gender fluid because it changes from day to day, sometimes hour to hour. If you want to keep thinking of me as she, I will not be offended. If you decide to think of me as him, then fine, I won't be offended. But the pronouns I prefer for what it's worth are they, them, and their. But yeah, I just think this statement is very cool. <laughs> and, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, like it's really not like a perspective you see that often. And like, it's really kind of great that people who maybe lived as, as trans for quite some time, like now see that there's more options in ways that they can like identify that things aren't so you know black and white as as they say yeah absolutely and definitely definitely upon reading that it kind of changed my I didn't ever know where I was quite where I was going with the werewolf that was there an end to the kind of like werewolf mm. reading right yeah uh, you know, and not that like readings of texts are contingent on their authors or do you know what I mean? Yeah. But for me, it kind of clarified and kind of complicated my thinking on that in like a couple ways, right? Mm-hmm. Especially on the kind of the 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 hairy thuggish women text mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Clark, because um, I think I I do think if you're looking for especially like a well, e- like either a transmasculine or a transfeminine reading of the red tree, I think mm-hmm. that's available to you, through you know through the wolf for sure. Yeah. If you're looking for it, but I I'm kind of like wary of invoking specifically the like masculine female grotesque, right? That Elizabeth Clark talks so talks about mm. for like two reasons. First, because while she like correctly identifies that like you know, masculine traits and attributes are, like, stigmatised in, like, cis women. Mm. It's, like, all, like, gender variance is much more aggressively stigmatised in trans people. Yeah. Like, I think it's kind of remiss to, like, bring it up and then and then move on. So that's not the case. And then also, on a kind of, like, more basic level of the red tree, mm. the idea of, like, in a way... <laughs> Looking at that and going, saying that the that the wolf has anything to do with like masculine traits, is to an extent looking at a story that's all about like women's relationships and like going, but like where's the man? <laughs> like, where's like where's sure. the masculinity? You know, and if there is like female masculinity present, that that it's like there as a negative, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is is the case. I think. Um, that it definitely is this like adjection of kind of like aggression and, and these these like negative traits, but I don't think that even if those are commonly read as masculine, they necessarily are yeah. in the red tree. Sure, yeah. 
so that's just my own <laughs> thinking through my own research and going maybe it's now you know less relevant. I think it was definitely interesting to to discuss. Um, yeah, for sure. And like, I, it's not that I don't think it's relevant. Like, I think it is still relevant. Like, um, and I think like the the monstrous aspect is like still something that I've been sort of thinking about, and that I think is really relevant to both texts like 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 you say like trans and like gender fluid writers or whatever like I don't think their work always needs to be examined like through the lens of like their transness and their queerness and stuff Mm -hmm. but I also think like what you said is really relevant (laughs) to what's going on in the text and like you know there's like a definite pressure for like trans and queer people to sort of assimilate into a sort of head culture, right? Mm. And be like Caitlin says in their statement, like it's it's very black and white. It has to be very black and white. Yeah. And like, you know, we currently have that problem, like in Ireland, where people are going to try and get trans healthcare, and if they don't, you know, fall straight into like a very women category or a very masculine category. Yeah. You know, they can like be denied that healthcare and if they don't want to answer like invasive questions about their sexuality yeah they can be denied that healthcare and like like there's not a lot of space outside of the gender binary like in medical settings and stuff like that right yeah and so I think there's there's some kind of freedom in being able to embrace like the monstrous or the weird or the strange yeah in in fictions and like fictions that trans people write and create like in the in the Susan Stryker text, she kind of says like, you know that that this that like trans people being unnatural is sort of like an accusation that's like leveled against trans people, right? That it's like a negative mm. or whatever. Whereas like I don't know, there's there's like a sort of freedom in like embracing that non-natural thing and being like that it's actually fine that it's not natural you know mm. like what do we do as humans in the 21st century that is natural yeah you know i also think it's like very um like generous of her the like ending of that piece mm-hmm. where you know she's kind of going you know it's not natural i'm embracing it you yeah. know and offering it as kind of a challenge to like listeners to look to themselves and uh interrogate their own status as a kind of created Mm. being right Um, yeah you know bodily and identity wise right to like look the control that you have over your own self and ask you know what of that is your own making and what would you like to be different yeah i think that's really powerful yeah yeah you know like there is the like a a power in uh you know changing your body or like having the power to to change your body and and changing it into something that like better suits your vision of yourself or whatever yeah you know absolutely and of like um yeah and and of embracing the body that you have and like mm. telling people that their impression of it is much less important yeah. than your impression of it, you know. Exactly, yeah. By which I mean their impression of it is completely <laughs> relevant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so where where does that 
where does that leave us? And, oh, I really don't know. <laughs> and should should we have mentioned furries? Should we be talking about furries, Quiva? I don't have the I don't have the the knowledge, the deep lore knowledge of furries to talk about furries. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, I don't have the expertise on on trans issues. So these are like mm. Bobby formed <laughs> ideas of about gender. Yeah. And but I literally I I do not know enough about furries to even begin to touch the topic. But I think it's there's something in there as well, and, and especially in terms of the red tree with, with all the kind of animal hybrid mm-hmm. drawings and like erotica and so on. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. And also, there's definitely someone someone out there who could take these thoughts and like relate them to the like intersection of the like trans community and the fur community. Yeah. Which is a powerful, a powerful subgroup. You know, like, write in. Let us know. Please, <laughs> make your own podcast. Um, <laughs> Come and be a guest. Yes. Whatever. <laughs> Come, we'll do a many subs <laughs> if this is your area. But is there a way that we can include the, the animal hybridity mm-hmm. in our piece? It's the last one of the year. Yeah. I want to do quite a fun one. Yeah. Even though, <laughs> um, you know, even though one of these texts is basically a horror text. But yeah, so hopefully, you know, after all this, like, you know, deep gender chat, mm. we'll have... We're just going to trivialise it <laughs> yeah. before making a picture. We're going to make a fun, yeah, we're going to make a fun little match em up game where you can put, you know, wolf ears on a little avatar of yourself. <laughs> that's our plans. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, just in case we didn't know what a pickery was, that's what it is. You pick, a, like, a skin colour and, like, face features and, like, you know, any accessories, which in our case will be, <laughs> you know, animal ears and eyes and so on. Yeah. So I was thinking, yeah, that we could start with, like, the ones that are featured in... The specific ones that are featured on screen in Jupiter Ascending. Mm. Um, so like rat face, <laughs> rat tail, lizard tail, yeah, horns on the head. Yeah. And then we've got it and wolf, I guess. Yeah. Bee, I suppose, as well. You Absolutely. Put in some wings. Some <laughs> angelic wings, you know, like a wolf has. So yeah, watch this space. See if we can actually do that. We invented a card game this year, so This should be easy. Cut to like ten days later. We're just like we're not making a big group. Cut to like we just released five images <laughs> that we've made. Just as predicted, we abandoned our idea of a pit crew, not immediately but close to immediately, and instead of made hand-drawn, printable, dress-up games, uh, one from each of us for each of the main characters of Jupiter Ascending which you can find on notnot.ie, as always. Looking back on 2020, Quiva, how do you feel about what we've created here? God... What a year it's been. 
yeah, you know, it was pretty dire, but we made some, we made, we made some episodes for sure. Yeah. And some other stuff. Nobody could deny that. Yeah. If you're, you know, bored over the holiday period or indeed any time in the future that you might be listening to this, mm. we've got other games that you can play online or with your family. One is just a button. So really, you've got no excuse. <laughs> just go and press it for good times. Um, it's a... It's an AI overlord generator. We made two audio pieces. One was an audio drama piece. Mm. One was a... Art. Art. It was art. <laughs> Episode two was it's pure art. art. Art from start to finish. In terms of 2021, I think we've got a much better grasp on what we're doing, hopefully. I think we do. Yeah. And, like, as always... But, like, especially now, we'd love to hear from any listeners on, like, what's working for you? Like, what do you want more of? What do you want less of? Like, get in touch. If you're a furry, get if, in touch. <laughs> please. Like, yeah, we're at notnotpod at gmail.com. Um, we're notnotpod on Twitter and Instagram. Notnot.ie is where you can find everything we've made everything we've done this year including um an episode that was not in the main feed that we did for dublin digital radio for halloween which Mm -hmm. is like just horror movie recommendations and tunes which i strongly recommend um and uh yeah i'm excited to see what on earth we'll be talking about and researching first thing next year let's pick our first items of next year are you ready to hear what the film and TV show will be? No, but tell me anyway. <laughs> it's Event Horizon. Oh my <laughs> god! Do we, we wouldn't happen to have a director written down there by it, would we, perchance? As if I'd written anything next to this. Um, no, but the director is Paul W.S. Anderson. It's a Lawrence Fishburne slash Sam Neill vehicle. From 1997. And the vehicle in question is a spaceship. Very yeah. excited. It's a sci-fi horror. It's great. It's brilliant. Can't wait to rewatch it. Um, I'm pumped. Okay, so what are we going to pair Event Horizon with? What book um, will have the pleasure of being paired with this two, sci-fi body two, horror? 2022. It's number five, which is... The Bloody Chamber and Other Stories. This is another Catherine special. Yeah, this is Angela Carter. I mean, it's not a million miles away from uh, The Red Tree. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it gets a shout out in uh, acknowledgements at the back. Okay. Um, it is weird, often feminist kind of retellings of uh, fairy tales. They're pretty grisly. Cool. So it's a it's a short stories. Yeah, it's a short story collection. So we okay. can probably we can probably just pick one, and probably yeah. the bloody chamber might might be a good one. Okay, I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. Are we doing a wild card, or are we scrapping that in 2021? Will we do one and not tell people because it's a wild card? Although it's not really a wild card, is it? If we tell people, that's true. Um, None of this is going in. No, no, no <laughs> none whatsoever. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Have a good holiday season. 
if you celebrate Christmas or whatever else is on. Enjoy whatever you got. You know, we know lots of people with January birthdays. Enjoy that. <laughs> Enjoy those if you got them. Don't, like, we only wish happy birthdays to our listeners who were born in January. Nobody else, <laughs> nobody else gets a mention. If, you're, if it's your birthday on or near when you're listening to this, even if it's next November, you know, happy birthday. We've had our birthdays. None of you, none of you scared. <laughs> Didn't get a single happy birthday wish from any of our deeply dedicated listeners. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, sticking with it. It's been a learning curve. Yeah. Um, and thanks for coming on it with us. See you all in 2021. I am remain after six episodes, not Quiver Doyle. And I'm still not Catherine Foyle. And this has been Not Not A Podcast. Bye.